Holy Father, uh, it is our heart's cry. When we sing words like, give us Jesus. God, we mean that. We, we want Jesus above everything else. We, we don't want riches. We don't want health. We don't want a COVID-19 free world. If we get that without you, we don't want a world with perfect justice. If we get that without you, God, we, we want you. We, we want Jesus. And so I pray for us today as we continue to worship by looking at your word. God, would you, would you, would you do a work in our hearts where we would be saying, yes, we, we want Jesus and only Jesus and no one else because there's nothing better than having and knowing Jesus. God, we pray that all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you may be seated. Uh, if you're visiting with us today here in person or online, we just want to say uh, we're glad that you've decided to join us. If you just do us one favor, we'd ask that you would uh, let us know you were here by either filling out the guest card, which is on the uh, offering tables in the back or online. It's, that little thing is either, if you're on, watching online, it's somewhere in this quadrant, I think. Um, if not, it's also up here on this screen at nflchurch.com forward slash guest. If you would just fill that out, it would, we'd really just love to know that you were here today. Um, now, I'm, I'm going to be jumping into a series that should make me nervous. Actually, I'm not jumping in. I've already been in the middle of the series. We're we doing a series right now called uh, Do Justice, Love Mercy. Uh, we're, we're talking about the, the fact of justice, which is a major issue right now, a major conversation in our country. Uh, when, just when we thought things couldn't get any worse with things like COVID, then all of a sudden the issue of justice, not, not that it's a new just, not a new issue, but it's an issue that's flared back up again. And it is continually uh, getting more and more voice. And there's opinions flying everywhere about what's the right view of this. What should we be doing? And, and these opinions are not nice. They're feisty and they're angry and they're chippy. And then you come to church and I take the most stressful conversation that's happening in our country and we're jumping into it more and more and more. But, but here's what I believe. I believe that God speaks to these things. And we should care more about what God says about this issue than what Facebook or Twitter or what even we ourselves think or what your favorite news station think thinks. We should care deeply about what God says about this issue. I want him to inform our view of this and our understanding of this. And so the first two weeks in this series, here's what we've done. The first week we were in Psalms, and I wanted to frame this conversation that we approach all issues with this in mind, there's an act of worship for us that we believe that God is in control and he's strong so we worship him even when everything seems chaotic around us. And we have hope because not only is he strong and in control but his gospel is strong enough to change the hearts of men, women, and children. Not just their actions, their very hearts. The essence of who we are, his gospel is strong enough to change. So, so we enter into this conversation with worship and with hope. We also, uh, the second week, looked at what God says about justice. He, his definition of justice, which was much bigger than many of us, our definition of justice. And that, that definition that he has is that he's doing fair and equitable administration of just laws helping the vulnerable and maintaining whole relationships within the community. It's, it's that whole thing. It's just like fair and right laws that are good. It's helping the vulnerable and it's maintaining and sustaining whole relationships with one another. It's, it's, it's all of that in God's definition of justice. Now, there's still a lot of questions I have to answer for you uh, as we wade into this stuff. Uh, is there such a thing as systematic and systemic racism? What about, what should, we, what should our stance be about police and government authority? 
Uh, how are we supposed to respond to the sins of the past? Uh, all sorts of questions like this. Like, how, what are our next steps for us as a people and as a church as a whole? And, and so I'm going to be answering all those, hopefully, in this week and in the coming weeks. But additionally, I'm sending out emails each week with resources, videos and articles that I want you to read and look at to help you think further in this conversation. Um, and listen, I'm not saying everything that's said in every one of those articles or videos is what I want you to look at. But what I'm saying is I want you to look at it and digest it and hear more perspectives than what I think we've got. And, and most of the resources are not new, like as in the last couple months. Most of the resources are on purpose several years old, although some of them are in the last couple months. Because I do not want uh, the energy of this moment to contaminate the conversation. I want you to see this conversation is older than just since March. This conversation has been happening for a while. And I want to show you some solid, biblical, God-loving leaders that are speaking helpful things into this. So I want us to engage that. So today I'm, I'm waiting in a little bit deeper. Uh, I've been speaking generally, and uh, the way this is happening for me is I've put my toe in the water Today I'm wading in up to my knees, and the further we go into this series, the deeper into this we're going to get. So these are the weeks that people begin to get upset and angry. All right, and here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Evaluate what I'm saying and ask if it's actually in line with the word. All right? Because don't we care more about what God says than what I say? I know I, you better care more about what the word says than I say because if your dependence is on me and my wisdom, you are in a whole lot of trouble. And goodness, I hope you care more about what the word says than what CNN or Fox News say. You better because God is our authority and he sees everything perfectly and he has perfect wisdom. He knows what is best and he has the right to be in charge and say how we should think. He, he has that right. As king of the universe, he has the right to tell us how we should think and feel about something, which is shockingly powerful. But before I go any further into this, let me lay out some of the background for you with me in this conversation. Um, after I finished seminary, uh, I, the only place that I could really honestly find a job that was in ministry was there was a missionary in Australia. And he said, why don't you come out and live out here for a year and, and help me plant this church and get started in our mission work out here. So for a year, I moved and I I left the comforts of the United States and went to the miserable outback of Australia. It wasn't miserable. It was actually really awesome. Uh, the accents were amazing. Steve Irwin, phenomenal. Got to see that dude in person. Um, if you don't know who Steve Ir Irwin is, I guess that's like 15 years old. But phenomenal dude that would catch Crocs. Great guy. Anyways, um, Australia was this phenomenal experience for me because I got this rare opportunity. I mean, I had moments of it growing up in a home where my dad was Arabic. But I got this rare opportunity to step outside of my culture and my context for more than just a week or two weeks. I got to do it for a whole year. For an entire year, I lived in another country. The, the difficult thing was, and here's what happened for me. They looked like me. They sounded somewhat like me. I assumed they thought like me. But about three to five months in, all of a sudden, I began to realize something. I began to realize I have no, I'm on a totally different page from the people around me. They think differently. They have a different perspective. There's actually a different culture here. 
And as that reality began to hit me, it made me begin to question things that I never, ever had begun to question in my life. My viewpoints, my perspectives that were distinctly American, that I had translated not just to American, but to God's viewpoints, I began to question. I began to see them for the first time ever in my life. And it was, it was humbling and it was difficult and I would get angry. Can I just be honest? I would get angry. People would say stuff to me like, what are you crazy? No one thinks that. And then I would realize everybody almost in Australia thinks that exact thing. And I, I didn't know how to wrap my brain around it. Is everyone in Australia insane that thinks like this? Um, I would get those ideas bounced around in my head. But what was happening for me was a breakdown of arrogance by opening up my perspective to see other viewpoints. And then years later, I became a missions pastor at a church. And so now I began to wade into not just Australian culture, but now I would take people to places like, like Haiti and uh, working with Afghans and working in the Middle East. And they would be going to places all over the world. that You're, you're taking them to Guatemala. And, and they're stepping into places that are not just visibly similar, but, but in the background, the culture's different. It's an immediate smack in the face. Like, if you've ever been on a mission trip into a third world country, anybody in here been, okay, good. You can still raise your hands even though COVID's going on. That doesn't spread the disease. Uh, the, the masks protect this somehow from spreading the disease. Just kidding. Um, like, if you've ever gotten a chance to be out of um, this developed world country and you're getting into a third world country or developing country, Listen, literally, the sights and sounds immediately confront you. And so I got the privilege of taking people on trips all the time as they would encounter severe poverty for the first, they'd never visually seen it in person apart from a commercial on TV. Like they, they actually waded into it and, and smelled it and saw it and experienced it. When you, when you wade into that for the first time and you take people time and time again, you begin to see how we naturally respond when we're shocked at the sight of poverty. And, and here's what was shocking to me, that almost I could begin to actually chart out what people would say when they were in that country for the first time. Because almost all of them would say the same exact list of phrases. Because here's like, we're all coming from an American perspective and stepping into to a perspective in Haiti, and then we respond with the same thing over and over and over again because that's what our perspective does. And I began to realize the things that we were missing. The, the things that we were missing because... We had our perspective and we had not learned to hear or see another perspective. I, I began to witness the quickness of someone who's been in a country for two days begin to prescribe the solutions for the poverty in that country. Literally, they would be there in two or three days. Say, you know what we need to do here? Here's what we got to do. And they would, it was shocking to me. I would, I would have these people who were engineers in NASA. They had engineer mindsets and they would see all the infrastructure that was torn down, and they would immediately begin, here's what we got to do. We've got to do this, we've got to do this, we've got to do this. And I would just think, man, uh, that's really awesome if we could do that here. But, but what's shocking is they would actually believe they knew how to fix poverty within two days of being there. They, they knew how to deal with a global issue that was shockingly complex. They actually thought they, would, they could solve the solution with two days of encountering it at a superficial level. They thought they knew the answer. 
because they hadn't actually listened to the other perspective yet. It, it was shockingly arrogant. And, and then to realize that they didn't actually understand all the forces that were at work behind this issue of poverty. So you're probably wondering, what does that have to do with justice? Well, listen, I'm, I'm going there. Stick with me. Let, let, let me give you an example of what happens with this. Uh, most Westerners, especially Westerners in the United States, define poverty like this. It's a lack of resources. You don't have money. You don't have food. You don't have clothing. It's a lack of resources. Um, w- one book that I read, it's called When Helping Hurts. It's by a couple guys named Corbett and Fickert. Um, they, they, they quote this. I want to read to you how the poor describe poverty. I'm going to read from the, the book here because they actually describe poverty distinctly different than most of us would describe poverty. Like I said, we would mainly describe poverty as a lack of resources, but, but listen to how these people in poverty, this is from a, a worldwide study by the World, um, I think it's the World Bank, I forget the name of the group that did it, but, but listen to how these poor people describe what poverty was like being in it. They described it this way. This was one person from Moldova. For a poor person, everything is terrible. Illness, humiliation, shame. We are cripples. We are afraid of everything. We depend on everyone. No one needs us. We are like garbage that everyone wants to get rid of. Just as you read that right there, did you hear anything that mentioned I need more money? Listen to this, and I want you to pay attention. This is a person from, from I don't know how to say them, Guinea-Bissau. I, I forget how to say that. Here's, here's how they defined it. Here's how they described what it was like to be in poverty. When I don't have any food to bring to my family, I borrow mainly from neighbors and friends. I feel ashamed standing before my children when I have nothing to help feed the family. I am not well when I'm unemployed. It's terrible. Now, you would have heard some things about stuff there, but did you hear how much relationship is impacted by poverty for that person? I feel ashamed. I have to look at my family. When I don't have a job, it's just I'm not doing okay. Look at this person from Uganda. When one is poor, she has no say in public. She feels inferior. She has no food, so there's famine in her house, no clothing, and no progress in her family. Do you hear what she said there, how she described, yeah, I need food and stuff like that, but I, I've, I've got no voice. I feel inferior to everyone. Or this person in Cameroon, the poor have a feeling of powerlessness and an inability to make themselves heard. So why do I use that illustration? Because most of us would define poverty as a lack of resources, but the poor would define it as a lack of resources and a lack of relationship and a lack of power and a lack of influence and no voice and no one to be next to them to actually fight for their cause. Whose perspective is right? Listen, I want to suggest to you that sometimes when there are complex issues of things like poverty, the solution is complex because the problem is complex. And one of the things that has to happen to get to a good solution is you can't just take your single-minded, narrow experience and bring that to the table with a simple, narrow-minded solution. 
It is bigger and more complex than that. And today, in our culture right now, let me tell you what I think is happening. I think we've got narrow perspectives making cheap solution and cheap shots about arguments that they don't fully understand and have not fully listened to. It is not humble and it is not appropriate. Let me lay out some of the complexities of things like poverty and injustice. Most of the time, these people are talking about, it's not just I don't have resources, it's that I've got no power, I've got no influence. There are systems that deal with poor people, especially in global poverty, that help keep them poor and make it more and more difficult for them to climb out of severe and extreme poverty. That there, there are actually systems in place on purpose and on accident, that hold them down and in poverty. That's one of the things you discover when you begin to study global poverty. It's not just a simple matter of that person makes stupid decisions. It's not just a simple matter of they've got sin, they're lazy. Maybe there is some stupid decisions. Maybe there is some laziness. But it's not just that. There's more to it that makes someone poor and keeps them poor. So as we look at that, some of you should be saying, I don't know about that. I mean, is that what the Bible says about poverty? Is it, does it say that there's oppression and things like that? Listen, when you study the Bible, what it says about poverty, you're going to find all sorts of reasons for it. It is going to talk about the sluggard and the sloth and, and the fool. It's going to talk about all those things. But it also talks about a few other things that I think are important for us. Let me show you some of the places where it, the Bible talks about whether or not there's actually uh, systematic and systemic oppression. Does the Bible even leave room for that for the cause of poverty or one of the influences in poverty? Open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Verses 1 and 2. If you don't know this, it's Solomon writing. The smartest dude that apparently ever walked the face of the earth. The wisest guy that made some of the dumbest decisions ever, if you know his life. All right? And uh, he, Ecclesiastes is a pretty negative book. i got to be honest with you. He's like, man, everything is useless. Uh, it's like Solomon went through COVID and racial issues way back then. And he just thought, it's, everything's vanity. If I've got to stay in my home and wear a mask, it's just vanity, vanity is what... He's constantly saying. In Ecclesiastes chapter 4, Solomon is giving his opinion of, of his world and, and what wisdom he's gaining from. And look at what he says in Ecclesiastes 4, verses 1 and 2. Again, I, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. Look at this. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. I, I saw all these awful things happening, and I saw them weeping. Those who were oppressed and held down, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. And there was no one to comfort them. And then in verse 2, he's like, listen, it would be better to be dead. Or better yet, not even to be born. You see, see what he said there? Like, it shouldn't surprise you. He's sitting there saying, listen, when I see the oppressed and people who are oppressed and they're weeping, here's one of the problems they've got. Their oppressors have power and influence on their side, and the oppressed have no one to listen to their cause. Go to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, just the next page over, verse 8 and 9. He says this, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor, 
and violation of justice and righteousness. If you remember the sermon from a few weeks ago, righteousness and justice, Sedek and Mishpat. If you see this, do not be amazed at the matter. Don't be shocked that there's actually oppression of poor people right here in our midst, Israel. That's what he's saying. In Israel, under Solomon, right after King David, the people of God, he is saying, when you see the oppression of the poor in your area, don't be shocked by it. And then his thing is, he says this, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are higher ones yet over them. He's saying, listen, we've got these officials to try to keep them accountable, and, and they actually watch each other's back to keep them from getting ratted out. The system is actually, you try to set up a county, but it, they end up, instead of being accountable to each other, they end up protecting their own. Verse 9, but this is gain for land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. In other words, a king who wants to create jobs and not go to war and not, he just wants to create jobs and have food and plenty of work for people, not a king who wants to go to war and fight and that's what, Solomon is saying here, yeah, don't be surprised when you see injustice and the oppression of the poor. That's what happens. Humanity is broken. Let me show you one other spot. Habakkuk 1, 4 says this. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth for the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Listen, church, here's what I'm trying to tell you. The Bible says that when you look around, you should expect to see injustice and oppression and broken systems. You should see when the righteous are surrounded by the wicked, justice is going to get perverted and messed up and broken. It's not going to go out right. doesn't matter how good your intentions are. The brokenness of humanity, our, the issues of our heart, that's why Jesus had to die, because we are so broken. We cannot fix this, even with good laws. So when you look around and you see all this talk about oppression and, and brokenness and racism, listen, you need to hear this. It should not surprise us that the, there's potential that our system is broken and flawed. If that surprises you, you do not understand the state of humanity. And you are being blind to the reality of who we are as a nation. There are a lot of really good things about being in the United States of America. Tons of awesome things. Things we should be grateful for. There's tons of things that have happened here that have not been able to happen in other countries. And it's been a great thing and we should celebrate those things. But those good things do not negate or cancel out the things that we have gotten wrong. It can be both, can it? Can't we have said we've made tremendous progress in the area of racism, but we still have work to do? Can't we say, hey, we've done some things that have messed up, but because of who God's made this country to be, we are a people that when we see it, we can fix it and change it and make it right. Can't we say that about us and at the same time say we've messed some things up? Can't they both be true? And what ends up happening, the discussion that's happening right now, from my perspective, is there's a group of people saying, everything in the U.S. is awful. And a group of people that are saying, nothing in America is wrong. I'm caricaturing. But that, that's what the fight sounds like on Twitter and Facebook and on the news, right? 
Like no one gives an inch. And the church, the church almost can't even bear to look at it. She's she's on the sideline and either she's getting wrapped up in some type of chaos, not being grateful for the gift that we have in this country, or she's on this side of arrogance saying, there's nothing wrong, shut your mouth and don't talk about it. And listen, you need to know this. The Bible gives account for the fact, for the reality, that until Jesus comes and makes it all right, our systems will always be broken. Are you okay with that? But like, church, our only hope, yes, we want people in the law things working harder and harder to fix laws and to fix issues, but it will never get fully right until God is reigning on the throne on earth. And it makes us groan for him to get here faster. And yes, we're going to labor to fix things. But what should not happen for us is we should not say there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong. Yes, there's something wrong. There's plenty wrong. There's, if, if we were sitting here saying that abortion was not an issue, we would be up in arms saying abortion is an issue. We care deeply about the murder of innocent babies. Because God is a just God that loves every single creature created in his image. Every man, woman, child, born and unborn, right? We'll get after that one, right? And we should get after that one. Unapologetically, as gracious as we can, we should not let that line get pushed back at all. We should hold the line and say, this is wrong. We want to serve mothers who have committed this sin. We want to serve fathers who have pressured mothers to do this sin. We want to come alongside moms that are scared and pregnant and meet the needs. We want to push for adoption to save those babies. And we don't want any more babies being killed. And we should never back up on that at all. And we should be able to say there's still a race issue that has to get addressed. It isn't fixed yet. We have work to do. We would not tolerate as a church, turning a blind eye to abortion. And we will not tolerate as a church turning a blind eye to issues of race that people are screaming out. And and here's why I'm saying that. I think the Bible not only says it's a possibility there could be issues, I think it says it's a reality that there are issues until God comes back and reign. And I think it also says that God takes those issues, all of them, very, very seriously. He takes it seriously. But let me just show you a few places where I think God takes it seriously. In Proverbs chapter 31, you can write this one down. It gives us instruction on how to deal with this. He says this, verses 8 and 9. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. He says, listen, we shouldn't just watch it and know about it. We should open our mouth for those who cannot speak. For all of those who are destitute, we should be opening our mouth and judging righteously. We should be engaging as the wise people of God against as much injustice as we can handle. But there's another passage. I want you to see how upset God gets. I'm going to show you two passages in the Old Testament, and then I want to talk about what we should do. And my goal is to show you how seriously God takes these issues. Micah chapter 6, verse 6 Mike is talking to the nation of Israel on behalf of God. And they're saying, listen, how do we make God happy? Like, what am I supposed to bring to God to make him feel worshipped and make him feel happy? That's the the issue he's addressing. And in Micah 6, verse 6, 
says, they say this, what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? What do I bring? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Like, listen, should I bring him a really good calf as an offering? This is Old Testament. That's what they love. I'm, I'm going to get him a young one. Like, a, it's a really good. It's got lots of life, but it's going to be a great. Should I, is that what I should have bring? Verse 7, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Like, what if it's not just one really good lamb? What if I, it's just extravagant? I mean, thousands of rivers of oil? Like, like what if I just go crazy extravagant in my worship of it? I'm just going to dump tons of worship. Is that what would make him happy? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgressions and the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Like, do I need to get crazy radical and insane with this? Even to the point of, it sounds like he's talking about sacrificing kids. Does God want extreme worship? Is that what he wants? Is that what will make him happy? Verse 8. He's told you, oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness. Some translations say to love mercy and to walk humbly, humbly with your God. Listen, you can try to worship God all you want with extravagant, give huge gifts to churches. What God wants is not radical, expensive, excessive worship that is not backed up with doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly. He wants us to do justice. In other words, this, singing songs is cheap. It's cheap, empty talk. Doing justice is the act of worship that makes God smile. He also says this, uh, Isaiah, if you flip back to Isaiah chapter 58, Isaiah's having the same issue with Israel. They're, they're all upset. Let me read these verses with you. Isaiah 58, verses 1 through 8. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift your voice like a trumpet. This is what we telling Isaiah to do. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sin. And look how he describes them, verse 2. Yet they daily seek me. They seek me every day they're after me. And they delight to know my ways as if there were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. Two weeks ago, that's Sedek Mishpat. They delight to draw near to God. Listen, they, they love to look like they're going after me. And they say this, look at verse 3. Why have we fasted and you don't see it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no, not, you don't acknowledge it, God. We're fasting. It doesn't seem like you care. We're humbling ourselves. Says, and he says this, behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Man, I think today that would say you fast and pray on Sunday morning and Sunday afternoon. Your Facebook and Twitter and Instagram are on fire with feisty, arrogant arguments. That's what it would sound like today. By the way, in case you didn't notice, the Old Testament prophets are very feisty. He says this, fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Now he gets to it. it is such the fast that I choose? A day that a person will humble himself. He'll bow his head down like a reed. He'll spread out 
ashes and sackcloth. It, it, will you call this a fast and a day acceptable? Lord, like think about the intensity of that. Like God said, I don't want you just to take a day and fast and, and bow your head and be all humble and put on sackcloth and sit in ashes. That's that whole posture of grieving and mourning. Verse 6, is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? <laughs> Think about that. And not hide yourself from your own flesh. In other words, Listen, you, these people, they're your own flesh. They're fellow humans made in the image of God. Don't hide yourself from the poor, the weak, the vulnerable, and the oppressed. Don't ignore them. They're fellow image bearers of God. They're fellow humans just like you with dignity and worth and value that I died on the cross for. Don't ignore them. I was like, you can talk about fasting. I want you to open up your house and let a homeless guy live in there. You see how radical that is? He, what's crazy is he didn't say, listen, you need to go to the homeless guy and say, let's talk about the five reasons why you're homeless right now. You're not working hard enough. You're addicted to this. You've got this. I'm not saying he doesn't say to address those issues. I'm saying he's saying you lean in and you help meet the need of them because they're made in the image of God with grace and mercy. You can address those issues. They've got to be addressed. But, but listen, He's saying, first of all, you need to care about the people who are oppressed and vulnerable and weak. Listen, I think God takes this seriously. So here's what that, I think that means for us as a church. Right now in our country, there is a cry going out that there is an issue, a, a racism issue, not just at a policing level. It's bigger than that, right? Are y'all hearing that? It's not just at that level. It, and listen, you're going to hear in a few weeks, I think the Bible is clear that we're supposed to be grateful for police. There's a reason that God's put them here, and, and we need to be humble and submit to that authority. I, I believe that. But it doesn't mean that all policing is good. It doesn't mean that all our laws are good. It doesn't mean that all our courts are good. Do you think our courts are always coming up with just responses? I just mentioned Roe versus Wade a while ago. Does that make you feel confident the court does what is just? You think they got this one right too? They're filled with broken and flawed people. And so here's what I think that means. I think because God takes this so seriously, when there's an outcry about oppression, that means we as the people of God should take it seriously as well. We should humbly and prayerfully listen and consider what's being said. Here's what that does not look like. It doesn't mean you go find all the people that agree with you on YouTube and build your case against the argument. That's not listening, that's arguing. It doesn't mean you go find all the crazy people who are on the other side that say the most outlandish, stupid things and say, see, all of it's stupid. Uh, listen, I'm really glad that people don't do that for Christianity. You think about the dumbest person you've ever met posting a video about who Jesus is online and your unsaved friends taking that being like, that's why I don't believe in God. Is, is, that what, is that how you would want us to be treated as followers of Jesus? No. 
as a follower of Jesus, what you want is when you begin to share your opinions of who he is, you want them to give you a fair chance. You want them to listen and consider it, right? So shouldn't we do unto others as we would have them do to us? Shouldn't we be saying, I, I'm going to listen, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to consider it. I'm not going to listen and build my argument. I'm going to listen with one goal. I'm going to try to understand. Not saying you have to agree with it all. Not saying you can't ask questions. Not saying you can't journey into the conversation. But before we wade in with anger and vitriol, and you got to pray and humble and listen because there might be a perspective that your two months in quarantine and on Facebook and YouTube might not have given you the depth of knowledge you need. Just like there's a perspective of poverty that two weeks in another country might not have given you the answer to the solution. It requires quiet, humble, carefully, pray, prayerfully, considering and listening first. I think there's another thing apart from just taking it seriously enough to prayerfully and, consider, and carefully consider it. By the, those are too many C's in there. Um, it, it's, it's really hard to do that. I think there's another thing for us. We know God takes it seriously, so we should take it seriously. We can consider it and pray through it and work through it and take your time. I think there's also something else we should remember. I want all of us to remember that we are all outsiders in the kingdom of God. God's people have always been the outsiders. He's always been the God of the oppressed. I mean, just think about Israel for a moment. Exodus chapter 1, where, are, where is Israel? They're in oppressive slavery. Pharaoh has captured them. They were there living free. He captured them because he was afraid of them. Then it became profitable. Then, then it's almost like he takes this thing and makes them like cattle, that not thinking they're fellow humans, he's lessened it to justify the slavery, and he's made them less so that he can make a command that says, kill every boy, baby boy that is born. That's where Israel's at. And God says, I hear those are my people. Those slaves are mine. Those people that Egypt considers less than human and broken, they're mine. And I'm going to rescue them from that and make them my people and take them to the promised land. God has always been a God of the oppressed. And we're not any different. Ephesians chapter 2 makes this phenomenal statement. I want to read this to you because I, I think it reminds us of how we should be acting. Let me read, read this. Not only should we be listening, but, but remember that we're outsiders. Listen to verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh. That's all non-Jews. All right, so if you're Jew, anyone, I don't want to call you out. If you're Jewish, you get a free pass on this one, okay? Uh, if you're non-Jewish, for all the non-Jewish people in the room, let me remind us where we are at. One time Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by the family. You were called outsiders. That's what it means. Verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were an outsider. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. I can't read that for some reason. Covenants of promise, really hard word to read. Um, right? He said you were outsiders. You had no connection to Christ. You had no access to the covenants and the promises. You had no voice. You were without 
with having no hope and without God in the world. And then look at this. This is the gospel, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near. You've been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace. Listen, I want to remind you of the gospel that every single one of us Every single one of us were outsiders, without hope. We, were, we had no voice. And God saw us. In our rebellion and in our brokenness and all the dysfunction, he said, I'm going to love him. And I'm sending my son. And he's going to die on the cross. And he's going to make them sons and daughters. I'm going to give you access. I'm going to bring you into the family. I'm going to give you peace. Listen, that truth that not only does God care deeply about it, so we should care about it, the truth that we were all outsiders and God made us family should mean that when we hear the stories of the oppressed, we're hearing the stories of ourselves in Jesus. And it should make us empathetic as fellow outsiders who have been welcomed in. The church has always been the place for the weak and the oppressed. It's always been the place, or at least it's supposed to have always been the place. And so, so, so here's what I mean. Let me give you an example because when I'm talking about empathy and having empathy for people, you're listening, you're being empathetic. Here's what I mean by empathy. I don't mean you listen and then everyone gets a free pass for bad behavior. That's not empathy. Biblical empathy is that you're quick to listen and slow to speak. Uh, it, it's that... You rejoice with those that rejoice and you weep with those that weep. It means you're, you're listening with understanding and trying to feel what's kind of going on. Here's the best example I can give of this. Uh, unfortunately, pastoral ministry, you bump into some really hard conversations with people. One of those hard conversations when you wade into a marriage where there's been unfaithfulness in that marriage and, and they show up trying to work it out and we begin to have conversations. Um, I wish I could say I haven't had to have this conversation multiple times, but I have. But let me tell you what it looks like when, when um, one spouse has been unfaithful. I can just share what any, when there's any kind of fight in your house. We start a normal fight and then add what an affair does to that fight. In a normal fight, if your wife or your husband comes to you and says, listen, I felt really hurt when you did this, and they, they list it out, uh, one of the things that can happen very, very quickly is, let me tell you the worst way to fight. This is free advice for all you marriage people. You just tell me. If your husbands, if your wife came to you and said, it hurts me you never help with the dishes, and you responded, are you crazy? You're crazy. You're stupid. Stop being lazy. Just out of curiosity, all the men in the room, how's that going to work for you if that happens this afternoon? Listen, you're going, to be, you're going to be hurting physically. Don't hit your husband now. You don't, don't, he hasn't said that. I didn't say that. This is a make-believe. They're already angry. Oh, goodness. Like, listen, that's, that's a no-brainer. Everyone says, listen, dude, you listen to your wife with understanding. Try, try to understand what she's trying to say. Man, if you went to your wife and said, listen, it, it bugs me when you do this. And she says, you're just a jerk. I'm kind of curious to how, how that fight goes at that moment. It's boom, boom, boom. It, yeah, it's, it, maybe y'all are saying it's flip-flop. It's flip-flop. Like what, what I'm saying is you start talking like that in a fight, 
and it ramps up big time. What are you supposed to do? You listen and try to understand. You, may not, you don't build your case while they're talking. That's a great way to have a really bad fight. Like you listen to try to understand and you want the emotion to diffuse so you can come back to another time and disagree later. But when someone is hurt and wounded, you don't build an argument. You listen with empathy. You can argue later about the nuts and bolts of it, but initially when they're hurt and wounded, what you counsel people do is you listen with empathy to make sure they're heard and they know and feel that they have been heard. So when a couple comes and someone's had an affair, here's the problem. The wound is massive. It's not just like you, threw, you left your dirty clothes on the bathroom floor. You don't help with the dishes enough. It's not that. When it's an affair, the wound is huge. And it feels ongoing. It feels like it can never heal for the wounded spouse. They always remember it. What eventually will end up happening is the spouse who had the affair, will feel beat down because the spouse who was wounded will wake up one morning and say, listen, I had a dream last night. And I remembered what you did three years ago. And I'm really mad at you. And do you know what the spouse that has already apologized and gone through counseling will want to say? How much do we have to talk about this? Am I always going to have to, I have to apologize for the rest of my life for this? Will I always be beat for this? Will I never get in, why bother if I'm never going to get in the right relationship with you? Listen, that would be a mistake. Because if they want that relationship to be whole, that wound is so deep that when it flares up, that spouse has been wounded. If you want to maintain, they're going to have to work through it again and reapply forgiveness. When the emotion flares up, the loving thing for that spouse to do is to listen. Listen, and I've seen this. I've been in the room. Been in the room with the couples who have had the affairs and they're making it. And at first they talk about it all the time and then less and less as they're able to show more and more grace. But if it's only I apologize once, I shouldn't have to apologize again, you will not get a restored and whole relationship. Does that make sense? So what's going to happen is the loving person that cheated will say, you're right, let me listen. And then at some point, that spouse that was offended will, will cross the line and they'll, it'll be unfair. You didn't do the dishes and that's why I'm mad at you because you had an affair. And it'll be like, whoa. Like, and they're going to have to work saying, no, you can't beat me with that all the time. But at the same time, they're going to have to keep listening over and over and over again because the wound was so deep that empathy and listening is going to be the default response and arguing will happen later. Church, you need to hear this. The wound of racism in our country is way deeper than an affair. It, it's way deeper. We cannot say we handled this in the 60s. What's the problem? What we need to do is lovingly and humbly listen with empathy and we must care deeply about injustice that we might not see we cannot come with cheap I've thought about this for five minute solutions I'm not telling you it's going to be easy but the first step I'm telling you right now the first step 
We're not going to minimize the problem or deny it. We're just going to listen and empathize and care deeply. We'll talk about next steps next week. But right now, I want to give us a time just to chew on that and uh, respond to God. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? I want to walk you through a couple things. I don't know what God would have said to you today. But let me ask a few pointed questions. Did God convict you, whether it's in your relationship or on this issue, of being argumentative and dismissive? If that's been you, I want to encourage you to repent and remind you that Jesus covers this. Maybe you realize that you just need help to listen or you need help to show empathy. Listen, if that's what God said, I just want you to take, you take a moment and say, God, I, just, I want you to help me. Help me to listen better. Help me to show empathy. Maybe the thing that stood out for you was the goodness of the gospel. It just remind you of a, you can sit there in your seat and you can just worship God for this, that Jesus responded to our weakness and slavery to sin by coming to us and rescuing us. We were outsiders and he made us family. Can you worship him for that right there in your seat? some of you today, you've never placed your trust in Jesus. I just want to remind you of the good news that, that allows us to listen to these things and wait in. That the good news is that we were all broken and we made broken systems, all of it. But Jesus saw our need and he came and he died on a cross to pay the price, not just for our brokenness, but to buy us and to give us the ability to have new hearts. He cleans us and he welcomes us from the outside to the inside. And it's all done not by performance and not by being good, but repenting of our old ways and trusting in the work of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Just asking. You believe and you ask. And he says that he will save you and he will change you and he will welcome you into the family. If you've never done that, I want to encourage you today. You can do that right in your seat or after this service. The pastors would love to speak with you. Whatever he said to you through his word, I pray that you will actually take action on it and respond to him with repentance or asking for help or worship. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, um, God, we're grateful that you saw our outsiderness and our brokenness and you came with love. And God, I pray you would make us a people. God, make us a people that are not naive to the brokenness of our world around us. Make us a people that care deeply about oppression because you care deeply about oppression. God, make us a people that know how to listen well and show empathy. And God, I pray you'd move us past that at some point, that we'd be a people that love our neighbors well, that stand for truth and stand for justice. God, we pray that you would help us to represent you well to the city of Tallahassee. And I pray that all in Jesus' name.